Hello and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today we have a very special episode. We are celebrating to the day 50 years since the Woodstock Music and Arts Festival. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shudler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. Welcome back, everybody. This is an exciting episode for us. 50 years ago this week, there was an amazing musical experience that really opened up a lot of opportunities for the music products industry, including live sound. A lot of things sort of started with that Woodstock performance, and I think it's exciting that we've had some interviews with people who were there, some people who performed, and one of the co-founders, which I think is pretty exciting. So in this episode of the Music History Project, we're going to be talking about Woodstock 50 years later. This podcast is broken up into three different sections. So the first section you're going to hear from the people who were there, who actually played at this festival, the musicians of Woodstock. The next section is just the different people who attended Woodstock and their different perspectives. And the last and final section is the father of Woodstock himself, Artie Kornfeld. I like it. I think you've done a really wonderful job putting this all together, Michelle. Thank you for taking the time. What I think is awesome is it's like all of these podcasts, it's sort of happenstance that over the years we've just interviewed people that can talk about a specific topic in great detail, throw them all together. It's like, hey, we got a podcast. (laughs) And that's what happened here with uh, the musicians of Woodstock. Not all of them in these segments are talking about Woodstock specifically, but all of them played the festival. And I thought it was a great idea to, uh, to line them all up. With that said, I think the first one does talk about how his band actually got started because of Woodstock. Yeah. Um, First up is Jaco Marcelino, um, and he's going to talk a little bit about his band that I can't remember. Sha-na-na. Sha-na-na. That's right. (laughs) How can you forget Sha-na-na? I don't know. (laughs) What's even worse is I got so distracted by watching their old TV show in addition to... (laughs) Oh, you went down the rabbit hole, did you? (laughs) Oh, such a big rabbit hole. Um, Yeah, so here's Jaco Marcelino from Sha-na-na talking about playing at Woodstock. We got together on the campus at Columbia University, and I I was a freshman. I was all state football player out of Massachusetts, and I had I, I was recruited to play at Columbia. But 1969 was not the good atmosphere to be. <laughs> I had to tell the coach, coach, I just got a just played at Woodstock and I got a two record deal, and he understood windows of opportunity. So I was the only drummer on campus, and one of the bands I was in six bands. And I had drums, which was like the key thing. I had drums in my, I had a very, you know, little little rooms. They weren't big, but a very patient roommate. Uh, let me store my kit there. But I was in a, like a jazz band. Uh, 
I was in like a Temptations kind of Motown review thing. Uh, one was a blues band, and, and then these guys said, you know, bought me and the bass player, Bruno, into this thing. They were in the glee club, like the Yale Whiff and Poof, singing, Roar, lions, roar, and, you know, that, and Christmas songs at, around the hospitals, at, at the holidays, that sort of thing. But they started doing in their show, Little Darling, in the still of the night, and they started doing the choreography. Yeah, 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 they started. So I went down and watched them, and I said, they got something here. And then the next week, they, they invited me in. And uh, I was also in the Columbia Players, which is, I was acting. So I, I had to negotiate with the, because both shows were on in the same theater. Oddly enough, we just played it again, which was wild 47 years later. But one of the guy's older brothers, who was a greaser, put up flyers, come as you were, and it was like a night off from the revolution. Okay? You know, and there was sort of a jocks versus, they call them the pukes, you know, anti war, support the, you know, it was, it was volatile times. So, but. That place was so packed that night, everybody coming and having fun and getting dressing back with what they thought it was. And we did the 11 songs we knew, and then we did them all again. And our eighth gig after that was Woodstock. Eighth, eighth public performance was the Woodstock Festival in New York. <laughs> so we're an unknown band. We're an unknown band, college kids. We're playing, we're, we're about to pack it up, and I didn't go home. We all decided we'd stay in the city for the summer. And we, we did, we were the last band to play at Steve Paul's scene in Hell's Kitchen. That was the hangout. Hendrix, Joplin, Led Zeppelin, uh, you name it. They were all hanging there. And Jimmy got, Jimmy loved it. He probably saw us five times. And uh, Jimmy got uh, Kornfeld and Lang, the producers of Woodstock, down. And he said, uh, he invited, he loved it, and he told our manager, you know, we, you gotta do Woodstock. So he came over to me and he said, what's Woodstock? Should we do it? And I had heard about it. Back in those days, we didn't have Facebook. We didn't have social media. It was FM radio. When FM radio jocks could talk and play what they wanted. And that was really the underground communique. That and the village voice. So anyway, I said, yes, yeah, say yes. And we did the gig and it was, got $350 check and that check bounced. And we agreed to do the movie for a dollar. Best 10 cents I ever made. So, you know, it, and we're very visual. So for the medium, we were really good. They tried to edit us out, but we were getting standing ovations. So it, it just created, right away, it created the career, you know, in a, in a huge way. And again, we're doubly indebted to Jimi Hendrix. Because at Woodstock, by Sunday afternoon, when the rains came and then the stage was sinking and there was electrical problems, 
they were saying to Jimmy, you got to go on. It would be about 10 or 11 at night. You got to go on because, you know, everything's wreaking havoc here. And Hendrix says, no, my deal is to close the show. And there were five acts who haven't performed yet. It was including us because we get bounced every day. So come back tomorrow, come back, you know. So we're sitting there going, damn, like Hendrix is getting ready and we're like been here all weekend. We almost didn't make it. But Hendrix demanded that the acts who were waiting get on, which is so cool. Jimmy was, I, I don't know him a lot, but, you know, I, we had a lot of interacting with him, and he was really fair and, and a good guy. And besides being the, the greatest guitarist in history, and I, I don't think there's much of an argument there anymore. I mean, yeah. Did you have that sense when you saw him? Oh, yeah, you know. And the reason I that extended, it. that extended uh, Star Spangled Banner and the blues jam he does on that. It was just great stuff. What do you remember about the actual performance? I remember that the tempos were hyper because we were like totally exhausted. We, I, I slept in a van one night. I slept next to the pond, you know. I was on some sort of hallucinogen one night and I wanted to be alone, but there was a half a million people. So I had a problem. <laughs> but, you know, I, 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 I get a glimpse of it. But honestly, you go back and you say, what do you remember of something 45 years ago, you know? Right. And a lot of revisionist history in your mind, because you see this film, and you hear the stories, and some acts hated it, but you know we we loved it. But we were some we didn't get on till four o'clock in the morning, just before Jimmy. Sun is coming up. It looks like a total refugee camp. It might have been a third of the crowd, or less, because. But and they edited us in the film like it was. Saturday night, you know, but, you know, so it was pretty momentous to be part of it. I remember seeing somebody had the New York Times Sunday morning paper, and it had that big aerial shot of the crowd, the whole thing, and I said, yeah, this, this, is, this is a pretty big thing, you know, and so that was, we've been very fortunate. And we, you know, we still do 30 or 40 shows a year. We we're known for the live act, but we got very successful in other mediums, and so we never depended on it. We have gold records and platinum records, but we never depended on that for the livelihood. I don't know who can anymore. It's the one percent who still can. <laughs> but so you know, we were in film, we were in television, with our own syndicated series worldwide, eight years. And, and we were in Greece and we were in Woodstock. Uh, you know, the biggest documentary ever, maybe, or a musical documentary. And certainly Greece is the biggest uh, musical film ever filmed. What an amazing story. Their eighth gig. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, what I love is that was so oftentimes when we think about Woodstock, we think about, you know, psychedelic music of that time, Jimi Hendrix, of course, and all that stuff. But it's awesome that bands like a doo-wop group is also <laughs> performing there. I thought that was a, a great touch. And uh, of course, Jocko's an amazing guy. So it was really fun to add his perspective for sure. 
Also, a shout out too to how he said that he got most of his gigs because he was the only drummer on yeah. campus that <laughs> actually had a kit. <laughs> like, that's perfect. He said he was in like six bands or something crazy. <laughs> that's funny. So, the rest of this segment is dedicated to other musicians who actually played the festival. Is that right, Michelle? Yeah. And what's really neat is you can tell that they are all musicians first. Their big thing isn't necessarily that they played Woodstock, they didn't necessarily want to talk about that they just wanted to talk about loving what they're doing and playing what they want to play and i think that says a lot about the musicians who actually did play at woodstock definitely and i think that's a great transition into our next guest that we're going to hear from larry taylor of canned heat and larry's going to be talking about how he became a part of canned heat and his contributions to their different recordings i was living up in my brother's house and i got a call from this, uh, this guy, Henry Vestine, who was actually a fan of Jerry McGee's, used to come in to see which all the time, see us play, and he, he said, hey, I'm in this band, and we got this record deal with Liberty Records, and the band's name is Can Heat, and we're looking for a bass player. So, you know, you want to come and play, you know, audition. So I said, yeah, I'll go play. So I went and played, and I met Alan Wilson, I met Bob Height, I met, I knew Henry, and, uh, it was a drummer named Frank Cook who was playing drums at the time, and he later on was replaced by Fido Delaparo, who still carries the name on with the band today. And now we're going to be doing some work coming up here. And and I'm talking, this is 2010, folks. <laughs> so, you know, if you go, even that goes back oh, pretty far. So you know, right. so anyway, we're still doing stuff. But anyway, that. What year was that when you first? Six, 67. No, 66. 1966. And I was living at my brother's and went and played the audition. And then I started playing gigs around L.A. And then before you knew, it, we were at Monterey. And then we were at Woodstock. And here we are. So was there a Can Heat recording before you? There was a, a, a Can Heat recording before me that was done by Johnny Otis. Oh, okay. You know the guy. You know the yeah, artist yeah, Johnny Otis. Yeah. Johnny Otis was living in L.A., and Johnny Otis was, you know, doing, you know, producing, trying different things with different you know, younger groups that done. He took Can Heat in to the studio and recorded a record. It actually did come out later on called Vintage Can Heat. Can Heat actually was started as a jug band. They had a real, you know, Bob played jug. They didn't even have a bass player. They had a drummer and a jug and a harmonica. Really? Yeah. That's 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 they were really into the old music because of their being the record collecting, and that's where the name came from. The name Can Heat came from record, you know, basically uh, 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 records, you know, uh, the idea of the sterno, but also it came out of you know from songs called Can Heat Blues. You know, it's both. It's like came from that, also came from the idea of the sterno. You know what sterno is, right? Like yeah. He eats food. Well, they used to drink that back when. Oh, really? Yeah, they used to strain it through cloth and drink it, and they couldn't get alcohol. And poor people, or poor drunks. <laughs> <laughs> Desperate drunks. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, but anyway, that was, uh, you know, that was that's sort of how that kind of came to be. And, um, and you know, and then, I, then I got real more interested in really playing real blues, I wouldn't say that Candy wasn't real blues, but Candy was sort of a hybrid country blues, and Alan sort of had a really unique approach to the music. Alan Wilson, the guy that sang with the high voice, mm. he really did have a really unique approach to the music. To this day, there's nobody like him. And unfortunately, really is very, very underrated. Nobody really knows anything about him. 
it's really a shame because he was really, really a unique artist in that genre of music. He sort of had his own twist on it. Mm. If you really listen to it, to his songs and his music, as a matter of fact, there's a CD coming out of just all his songs that were done with Can Heat with him singing. Okay. That's the guy with the high voice that sang Going Up the Country and, right. and On the Road Again with the harmonica. Well, there's a, there's a full CD coming out of all, all the stuff that he recorded with the band as his vocal and his, his songs. Mm. And uh, so pretty soon, I guess we're going to be uh, doing this four-piece thing going to Europe, I was telling you, with Can He. We're going to be doing some of those songs. Is Alan going? Who? Alan? Alan's dead. Oh, I oh Alan that. died. Alan died in 1970. I didn't know that. Yeah, Alan's oh. dead. If Alan was still alive, you'd know him. Excuse me. Was, yeah, yeah, no, Alan's Alan died in 1970. He, he committed suicide. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wish he was still alive. Yeah, I mean, he was yeah. a great artist. No, no, he would have evolved. It would have been like oh, yeah. way gone. Who knows? There's no way to even know what it would have been, you know. But uh, he, I, I used to hang out with him. I was like pretty close to him. But, you know, but he had a lot of problems. I mean, he had personal problems and he had, you know, psychological problems. He took his life. Hmm. Drugs. He, well, he just took a bunch of downers and died in a tent or you know, above Bob Hyde's house in Topanga Canyon. Bob died of a drug overdose. Henry died of alcoholism and drugs. So the only one that, that the only original members that are still alive are me and Fido. And then Harvey Mandel is playing with us, and he he was a guitar player that did replace Henry Vestine at one point, and he's still alive. And we're playing as a trio with a singer, so we have a four-piece, and we're doing these festivals coming up this summer. So. Did Alan write some of the tunes too? Alan wrote a lot of the stuff. He wrote uh, well, well, you know, "Going Up the Country" actually was was a public domain song, but he took the idea from the old record Bulldoze Blues by Henry Thomas and then we just kind of put it together and we went in the studio all those hits were one take mm. it's amazing if you look you know if you go if you see how people make records today have this formulas and, and there was no formula back in the 60s when you made records you just went in and recorded what you felt at the moment and that's kind of what that was about you know and that's kind of like what those records were. On the Road Again was was a basic idea of a song that was written originally by a guy named Floyd Jones out of Chicago, but it wasn't it didn't have the same theme musically. It had more of a blues changes. This one was a mode. On the Road Again has like one chord and it had like the, it had like an Indian East Indian influence with the the tambora, which is a drone instrument that started, if you remember, they've listened to the record. So the harp and the blues scale mixing with that sound sort of was that 60s thing of, you know, of East Indian music and hippies and blah, blah, if you want to look. But it really was more to it than that. It had that vibe, but it also at the same time having that vibe, it had, it had that, that really fit with the blues. Mm. So that's kind of like how that happened, and what, what that was sort of about back then. And um, now, did you do anything um, in particular on those recordings as far as your contributions? Like, like what? Your bass work. I mean, did you like tune differently or? No, no. I just pretty much played pretty much on the on the on the slide, man. Just did it. You know, just heard it and played it. You know, it wasn't like you looked at a chart or you thought about any of that kind of music, it was like a feel. All that music in that era was pretty much like that. 
some of it was a little crude. I thought we were pretty good at it. You know, pretty good musicians at the time, and you know, and I had done a lot of studio work and done stuff, so I was sort of knew about the studio. Okay, that was Larry Taylor from Can He talking about uh, his experiences and love getting into that band and just some of the amazing things that he's done over his career. Great guy, great individual. He was very pleased to be a part of the NAM Oral History Program, and um, so was this next guy, John Sebastian from The Love and Spoonful, the songwriter and musician, great guitarist, who's still doing some amazing stuff out in the Woodstock area, as a matter of fact. I don't know if he uh, didn't leave or uh, went back, but uh, he's still in Woodstock. (laughs) (laughs) So here's John. Somewhere during the course of The Spoonful, we began capoing six-string basses and doing parts below the regular guitar uh, scale and found that it was very effective as a way of even reinforcing a rhythm section. You, You weren't really conscious of it except that it was sort of scrubbing in a way that would would be uh, you know would be uh, really a cool addition to your rhythm track. So uh, after about five years of that, a spoonful breaks up. I have a little time. Now it's seventy six. I come up to Woodstock by this property here eventually after a couple of years of renting and find the Vayette Citron shop. Uh, But now here we were in Kingston and I said, you know, I would love to build an instrument that was like a capoed six-string Fender bass. So we start talking about it the first instrument uh, I just had Joe got a birthday uh, gift from me of me holding the instrument and the, and the, uh, the uh, caption is do you know why they call it Vayette Citron? Because it takes two guys to lift it. Because this was while we were still learning about the relative weights of woods and so on. We'd made this thing out of maple solid. We were going, man, let's go for it. You know, they had a really dense and uh, cheap, and uh, eventually it got refined. Uh, I have over my baritone, which is what we began calling them. Life, I think I've played at least six instruments Vayette Citron, Citron, Vayette. I currently on stage play a Citron, and uh, this is the most recent, and he's sort of our new victim because we're we're trying to uh, get him to do what we want it to do. And uh, we're sort of refining pickups. But this is kind of the, uh, the end all of this baritone quest. Uh, 
and it's just been one of the most interesting things. And one of the side benefits of going to Nam every now and then was watching as, ooh, here comes a, a, a Dan Electro has decided to make a thing more intended to be a B to B instrument or an A to A instrument instead of E to E. And all of these little variables. And I think that somewhere in there were the kernels of Joe's eventual place in guitar building. Uh, I do a lot of playing as one guy, one guitar. And the process of doing that uh, you you start wanting to have the fullest, biggest sound you can, and uh, I guess I'm sort of a frustrated bass player in in one regard. My old bass playing pal Steve Boone always always said that like what works in the spoonful is that we're playing the same thing, uh, and and it was very often true. I mean. Not that he was finger-picking the bass or anything, but when we were playing these figures, he'd very often end up being, you know, right there playing the same thing. And so this instrument kind of was subbing for uh, at least three pieces of a rock band. from one big name to the next i feel like this podcast is just stacked but that's because it's about <laughs> woodstock and woodstock had quite the lineup no doubt the next big name that we're going to hear from is jack cassidy of this little band called jefferson airplane you may have heard of them um i was lucky enough to accompany dan on this interview we went on up to beverly hills and found jack's home and went in there and saw his amazing collection of instruments um old bases and really cool stuff that he had. He also had a dog named Chester, who was very nice. Shout out to Chester. And uh, yeah, what do you remember from that day, Dan? Well, of course, I remember his hospitality and all those amazing instruments. Chester was a very cute dog, too, I have to say. Um, and what and named after, of course, Helen Wolf. Exactly. And um, yeah, great guy and just a, a great perspective, I think, you know, talking about those early rock and roll bands like Jefferson Airplane that were trying to figure out what their sound was as they went along. And the fact that some of these songs had been written without a bass lick and Jack was asked to say, well, okay, here's a you know pre-existing song. What sort of bass would you put in this? And I mean, just an amazing amount of talent to, to think that way because you look back at um, some of his songs and you think that bass lick had to have always been a part of it. How do you fit that in after the fact? Yeah. It, it seems so seamless. So a uh, great passion. And I'm really very pleased that uh, we have another segment for the Woodstock podcast uh, with Jack Cassidy. I took a year off after high school and, and played almost constantly uh, in bands. And then 
of course, the Vietnam War, uh, you were, you were, you were uh, meat for the draft if you weren't in school. So I went, went, to, went to Montgomery Junior College then, and then it's now Montgomery College, four-year school. And that's uh, long about that time. I was 20, I think I just turned 21, 1965, uh, in April. And then I was, Yorma had moved out to the West Coast and was playing folk music and whatnot and, and ran into Paul Cantner and Marty Ballin and all those guys. They were just starting a, a folk rock group uh, uh, called the Jefferson Airplane that he named. And uh, that was in, in August uh, of 19, uh, July 65. And I think uh, I came, came out and joined them after a conversation with the Army. We hadn't talked in a little while. Uh, and and came out and joined the band uh, in October of 1965. And then, uh, then later on, uh, we started talking record companies and we got a f first recording contract a few months later. Mm. And the rest of the say is history. <laughs> so what was your first impression of the band when you came out? Well, f from my point of view, I thought there was all a bunch of nutty uh, uh, non-professionals, you know? I mean, uh, Paul had come from the folk world of in 12 string guitar playing he liked vocal harmonies he really loved all the vocal the heavy vocal harmony folk groups you know the weavers and carter family and uh, all of that and marty marty was a professional pop singer in the early 60s and was produced down here in los angeles and for capital and had put out pop records so just, but he was in and playing his version of, of folk music and, and ballads and whatnot and 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 uh and then, of course, the Yorma, that was, uh, was, uh, was then, by then, a tremendous finger picker. And, and, and Piedmont Sound, and a lot of his material was through Piedmont Blues, Reverend Gary Davis, and, and people like that. Uh, uh, so, um, Signe Anderson was the, the girl in the group, so to speak, and had a really good um, uh, alto voice. and. And uh, the, the harmonies were good, were good and thick. And so what was a great opportunity for me was I was at the right time because I was just stifling in the music world. Uh, I was just doing gigs to do gigs and make some money, you know, but there was no creative uh, bent. So I had learned a lot of stuff and, you know, uh, you know, or I had a lot of influences, but I, I had, I couldn't, there's no place to put them yet. So uh, with this, with the band Jefferson Airplane, we started, we were writing our own material, it was different. Somebody, you know, I'd be writing all the my bass parts, bass music to it, and influencing the music through what I wrote and played. So that really was, was perfect timing for it. Because I think if you stay in that world too long of only playing other people's music, you never get out of it. It's kind of like, I can, I can copy typing a, a thousand words a minute, but I can't think of anything to say myself, you know. So, the timing was perfect for me, and it, was, and it was a great opportunity for me to move all around the neck. And the, later on, a year later, when Grace came in the band, her classical influences on the piano were really profound in, in, in our development of uh, writing skills. Uh, so as she wrote music and wrote different things on that, I, I, could, I could apply, I could go all over the neck, up and down the neck, which I pretty much did with everybody, you know what I mean? And, and so, um, that's that's how that worked out, and it was, it was fortunate for me because uh, 
uh, I was able to convince him that to go that I could go a little different direction in the bass world without being required to play, you know, just supportive bass bass riff lines, you know, which is great in certain kinds of music and required in certain kind of music, but uh, this was a little different. So I've always played off of the vocals, off the lyrics. That's really been my my uh, my inspiration in writing uh, bass for songs. You know, I, I listen to the vocal and where the vocal is going, the melody and, and what they're doing with it and the kind of feeling and atmosphere. And I'm a big on trying to establish an atmosphere on the track, you know. That's really cool. So what was your first recording session like with the band? Well, you know, like most bands, because we were a band, and um, let me preface this a little bit. Marty Ballin was, a, was friends and in, in part ownership of the Matrix Club in San Francisco. Uh, so we would play the Matrix for a week at a time, or you know, four night run or five night run, uh, you know, two or three weeks in a row, and be able to flesh out and work on material that way. And we'd be rehearsing all day and go at night and play the song rehearsal day and, and turn material over. You know, it was really great for us, and that was a great opportunity to for us to get our stuff together as a band. And so when we got our first recording contract with the RCA, we went in like most bands do as a band playing the stuff that you play every night. So the first record was done on a three track, uh, two tracks and a track to bounce. And, uh, and we went in and played, I think we recorded four days, you know, went in and played the tracks like bad. Uh, the second album uh, in 1967, we went in with material partially written and material that was written. We brought over two songs from, with Grace from the Great Society, with Somebody to Love, and, and rearranged that uh, uh, in the studio there, uh, White Rabbit. And then uh, Marty had a number of songs coming back to me and whatnot, and Paul had songs, and Norma had the famous embryonic journey. And uh, that we said, he played that as a solo guitar and, and it's a piece that he wrote. And, and Yorma was kind of reluctant to put it on the album. He said, no, it sounded great. As it turned out, it was a great idea because it kind of created an atmosphere of, of anything goes on an album rather than produced album, you know, with a certain direction and intent, you know. And we lucked out with White Rabbit because it was a, a, a two, I don't know, a two minute, 30 second song, you know, which every producer loves, you know, we just lucked out with that. But uh, that album was the first one where we, we produced and, and arranged and started to put some material together in the studio. Uh, and that was the beginning, that was on a four track, you know, and, and uh, that gave us a chance to do a little more bouncing and a little more with the vocal. Because don't forget, it's, you've got a lot of these tracks, you know, not only lead vocal and background, but sometimes three-part harmony and stuff. So, so that was that was the unique aspect, I think, of Jefferson Airplane, with the with the not only the nutty assortment of uh, of the instruments. You know, Paul played a twelve-string, Yorma played guitar, and I played bass, and uh, our approaches, but we had that three-part harmony in there that made it made it pretty unique. <laughs> 
Okay, well, for me, when you think of Woodstock, you think of Jimi Hendrix. So um, without doubt, I think uh, one of the most important segments of this podcast is hearing from the guy who played with Jimi. And we're very, very proud to have an interview with Billy Cox in the NAMM Oral History Collection. And Michelle, thank you so much for uh, going through and finding this segment. Here's Billy Cox talking about how he met Jimi Hendrix and how they got together. I'd been on post maybe almost a year maybe and i was it was raining we ran for cover wound up on the doorstep of service club number one at which time the window was up about that uh high and i heard this playing coming out of it and it's in its infancy so i turned to the guy and i said that's pretty unique isn't it he said it sounds like a bunch of mess and i think it did sound like a bunch of mess to him i won't use the adjective that he described it with, but uh, to me, it was, it was calling me in. So I went and introduced myself, and here's this little bald-headed kid just trying to play guitar. His name was Jimi Hendrix. And I told him, I said, you know, I play a little bass. And I said, I'm not that good, but he said, well, they got these new electric basses. You turn in your service card, and you can rent a bass and an amp. Come on, we can jam. I said, okay. And that was it. That was the beginning of something. And uh, so I stuck with that. And so they say fate are the cards you dealt to birth. But destiny is what you do with those cards. And not only you grab that destiny and you apply uh, grit, the power of passion and perseverance. And I saw it work with Jimmy, and I followed suit. I terminated my jump status and became the manager of a service club number two. I did a lot of wheeling and dealing. It cost me 50 bucks and two-fifths of Canadian club. <laughs> and so that afforded us the opportunity to rehearse every day. He was just a peon in his outfit, but I had to give up 55 extra dollars a month because I no longer was under jump status. I had to work that out with a colonel and some sergeants and everything, so I wound up in special services. And that's what we did until up to the time we got discharged. And the rest is history. <laughs> and what bass were you playing? Did, did you have to give that bass back? Oh yeah, well they, they had some, uh, the ones there, but I really went and bought me one at Collins Music Store in Clarksville. But uh, yeah, so What'd you buy there? I bought that, my uh, 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 Fender bass, and uh, I tried to buy one in Pittsburgh. I brought that up. I washed dishes all for that summer, but I just didn't make enough money. To, even back then, that bass was about 280 or well, close to 300 bucks. So I lost that, never thought about it anymore. So I wound up in the service. So I had the money then because uh, I was a loan shark and a lot of other things in the military. So uh, that's the same base that followed me to, 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 to Nashville when I came here. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was great. What are some of the highlights for you playing with Jimmy? Highlights? Man, of course, Woodstock, the Isle of Wight, Isle of Vermont. Atlanta. He was top draw at that time. He was the king of the guitar. And it was great to know that I was a part of that. 
The power of the, the spoken word, constantly he kept saying, we're going to make it. I'm going to make it. You're going to make it. We're going to be big. And he kept saying, I laughed at that because, you know, but he believed that with all his heart and soul, and he made it a reality. And so be it. It became a reality. And then, uh, so after he went on and did his stuff, uh, well, we were here in town. I'll take you back. We were here in, in town and we had a little group and worked all around the area. And we, there weren't that many bands anyhow, so we, 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 we pretty well always had a job. Um, but uh, various groups came through here, like uh, the story of uh, Jackie Wilson and Sam Cooke. Uh, after we had finished our gig, we found out that Jackie Wilson and Sam Cooke, you know, word got around in the area. They're going to go down to the Barron Club. So we went down to Barron, we hung out, and pretty soon they came in with their entourage. And when they hit the stage to sing, the band that was on, on stage wasn't too sure about, and I, there was a little commotion. So Jimmy ran up real fast because he always had his guitar. Wherever he went, he had that guitar. He never put that guitar in the case because he always wanted to keep practicing wherever he went. He'd walk up the street, playing, watch a movie, playing, come out of the theater, going back to his place, playing the guitar. It became a part of his, uh, his life, and it was his life. So anyhow, we got up on stage, and uh, I forget, uh, I think, uh, Bring It On Home To Me and some other songs he did just a, collage of two or three songs. But we were playing because the other band wasn't too sure and they were glad to get off stage and you know, these big guys for that day and time, they were humongous stars. And uh, so after everything was over, they turned and said, who are you guys? How do you know all these stuff? You know? <laughs> and so they, you know, I, well, maybe you need to talk to our manager over there because I guess probably they wanted to uh, Probably take us on the road because we were that good at that time, but we had some other plans. But I think Jimmy was a little hesitant. He, you know, but I don't think he approached, wanted to get into that right then. But maybe, I think maybe about a year later, he uh, wanted to move on to do some stuff because he saw himself in the future. And he, so to make a long story short, I joined up with some other guys and I said, look, I'll join up with you, me and the drummer and all that. I said, but for one, if you, if you, I was pretty decent on bass, so I could threaten them. And I said, now, I'll, I'll join up with you, but when Jimmy gets out of a job and comes home, uh, he's got to, got to have, a, you got to have a spot for him. So, okay, we'll do that. He did that about three or four times, in and out, in and out, in and out, searching for his destiny. And this last time I got a phone call from him, he says, man, I'm said, I'm, this guy's gonna take me, this man, this girl's take, gonna take me to Europe and make me a star. And I told him about you. You know, and I thought about that. I've told so many lies about this, but the truth is, well, I, well, I wasn't a lie, I just didn't tell the whole story. Uh, he said, and I, and I want you to go. And I thought about that for that moment. I said, Jimmy, I'm uh, renting a amp. I still got my bass, but it's got three strings on the fourth one, four strings tied in a square knot. He says, you're a liar. <laughs> I say, yeah, I said, would you go ahead and you make it? Because I knew that possibly, and I think this 
segregated thing that was going on in the world, I figured if I went, as a possibility, me being black, he might not make it. But he did, he made it, you know, regardless of, he did real well. So I went on with my life. Enjoyed, did various things, and I finally had a publishing company and a, uh, on Music Row, and my friend had a studio in the back, and he had his office on the other side, and I had a great relationship there with that, and did some other things to make it, and I made do. And all of a sudden, I get this telephone call. I wound up talking to him when he came down to, to Memphis, and next thing you know, I'm in New York, and there it is. Okay, we're moving on to the second segment, which I actually think is uh, pretty exciting. Over the years of interviewing those in the music products industry, we've run across a couple of folks who were actually there at Woodstock and had really nothing to do with their performance other than being in the audience and yet having um, an opportunity to express those feelings. The one that comes to mind is... Uh, um, Ezra Mohawk, who is a background singer at that time, sang on a ton of albums. She also, uh, she was with uh, Frank Zappa. Uh, I think that was her first band that she was with. And then she became a songwriter, and we know her best for writing some songs for Schoolhouse Rock. <laughs> and um, Cindy Lauper had a big number one hit with her, so did Tina Turner. So a uh, great songwriter, but it all started with her having dreams of being in the background and singing uh, in, in, as a backup singer. So we're about to hear the story of how she had that gig at Woodstock, but something went wrong. Here's Ezra Mohawk. That's going to be the opening shot of the movie about me, is me running for, towards the stage trying to make it in time, trying not to get mud on my, I was dressed all in white, mud everywhere. But no, I was scheduled to play Friday as a solo, and um, we were following Michael Lang, the promoter, his car, he was with Hector Morales, they were in their car, in Michael's car, Hector was the, uh, the uh, agent from, um, from William Morris that lined up the big acts that allowed would stop to attract other acts and to happen. So uh, Hector's the unsung hero of Woodstock. And um, so Hector Morales, everybody, he made it happen. So we're following them and a car got in between, and my manager was driving at the time, he's, he's dead now. Um, he uh, OD'd two years later. But um, we're following them and a car got in between us and Teddy, the manager, missed the turn to the heliport. When they turned, we just kept going, and we went in, with, crawled in with the masses, and so we got there, and there were people like sleeping in the mud, and you know, in the in the, in the uh, car where the cars were parked. I said, "Man, you can't see them; they're going to get run over." Well, you know, sure enough, somebody did get killed and run over that way. I saw it was going to happen, but what can you do? We're just running to get the stage, so. <laughs> You know, the lights are still on, we see the stage, it was Joan Baez, you know, she's singing, you know. Well, it turned out it was the last song of her set, and she was the last act of the night. And as we're running towards the stage, the lights go out, they don't come back on. And that's when the lights went out on my career. <laughs> but I like to say that had I played Woodstock and, and, and been huge, I'd probably now be as dead as Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix because we had no restraint. And if you make it big that young, you have no reason to believe that anything can 
you know, stand in your way. So um, it, would, it would have been a, a danger for me because I was kind of a feral child, you know, ready to, to try, do anything, and learn from, from experience what's good and what's not good. And so I'm healthy and here today. There you go. <laughs> Such a great story from Esra. It just kind of makes you feel bad that she didn't make it to the stage. <laughs> and I, of course, have to disagree with her saying that uh, this was the end of her career. That was sort of the beginning of her career. Right, yeah. But it probably would have went into a slightly different direction had she been able to perform. Yeah, yeah. well, exactly like she said, like, who knows where she would be now if she was on stage that day. But still worked out pretty okay for her. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to our next person, we're going to hear from Dave Gantz. And oh, yeah, from Steve's Music up in Canada. Yeah, and he's got a very interesting story about uh, his time attending the Woodstock Festival. I sort of convinced my parents that I wanted to go to this three-day festival, and they really had no clue. And they said, okay. So I went off with three of my friends in a Nash Rambler. Off we went. Got there on Friday afternoon, parked the car and walked to the site, and spent four days um, just to experience one of the greatest times of my life. Yep. Did you have a clue what it was going to be like as far as None. what it became? None at all. I said I was going to buy my tickets at the door. Little did I know that when I got there, the fences were crashed and everybody was just rushing in, so it was just a freebie. And do you remember any specific performances? Uh, I remember a lot of the performances, actually. I remember The Who, I remember Richie Havens, I remember Santana. I remember waking up and seeing Jimi Hendrix on the Monday morning, and that, was, that, was, that sold me. That was the best thing I've ever seen. But the best part of the whole thing was trying to go back to find the car, because who remembered four days later where you parked? <laughs> right? But we found it. We needed 12 people to take it out of the mud, because people were sitting all over it, and we had a, everybody picked it out of the mud and drove back to Canada. Crazy. And that was funny, when we got to the customs, they just looked at us and said, you were at Woodstock, hey, he's, he's a go. <laughs> Enough said. Enough said. <laughs> so music was in me, it was like all around me and it was like, just wanted to do this so much. So once again, that was Dave Gantz talking about... <laughs> what a great story. <laughs> Nobody thinks about no. where they parked after four days. Like, I never... I've, I've done a lot of research on Woodstock. I watched a lot of movies about it in my uh, younger years, and, like, I never thought about that. <laughs> where did everybody park? Did they remember where their car was? Was it even there when they went back to get it? And if there was mud on the people, of course, there was mud on this car, too. So it was great. Good stuff. So up next is Henry Diltz. He's he was actually the photographer of the Woodstock Festival. He has such a great perspective. We've heard about, you know, people going through crowds and trying to find their car, but Henry was there while the setup was happening, while people started to arrive. He was there for the whole thing, and I'm just really happy Dan that you were able to get this story well i what i like about it is it's the real human part of it you know it's the you know talking to the the guy who cleans out the porta potties and you know i mean this is the guy who was there watching the setup having a like many other people no idea what was about to happen and being able to document it with his camera right so here's henry diltz as i say a lot of these things started with a phone call in my kitchen in laurel canyon a fellow named Chip Monk was on the line, 
Edward Berenson Monk, and his friends called him Chip. Chip Monk, uh, who now lives in Melbourne, uh, was a very famous, you know, lighting and staging guy, and he said, and I knew him from the folk days, he, you know, from our touring days, and he said, Henry, we're going to have a huge concert out here, a festival, you ought to come out here, and I said, but Chip, I'd love to, but I don't, I, how do I, I don't know those people, I don't, how do I get a photo pass? I'll speak to the producer, and the next day Michael Lang called, and all he said was, Chip says we need you. I'm going to send you $500 and a ticket. <laughs> I flew out. And I got there two weeks before the festival and documented all the building of the stage and the grounds and the camping area, the hog farm. Oh, I just wandered around all day. It was like, oh, it was like summer camp, you know? And, and I, I mean, I don't consider it work. It's what I, I mean, pay me, don't pay me. I'm going to take 100 pictures, you know, a day. Either way, you know? It's just what I do, and I, and I, I took more than 100 pictures a day there, of course, but... So two weeks of the building, and then finally people started showing up in that field. My first thought was, what are those people doing there? Oh yeah, I forgot, it's gonna, it's gonna be a, a festival, you know? I mean, I get hung up in the daily thing. I mean, you know, the hippie carpenters, you know, were sawing and hammering, and the hippie ladies would bring lunch and Coca-Colas, and you know, there was a little bit of smoking going on, and, and I just was having a great time, you know? And, and never even thinking it was going to be a festival. When you say, what did I think about it, you know? It kind of crept up <laughs> on us all. And of course, nobody knew wh how big it was going to be. Uh, you could see an awful lot of people out there. And then that, that Saturday afternoon, someone brought a copy of the New York Times with an aerial photo. And then we learned all the highways were closed. And, that, and then, wow, you know. And of course, I had an all-access pass working for the producer. So I was right up on stage when Jimi Hendrix played Monday morning. I was, you know, just you know, a dozen feet away, you know. Um, and, and it was wonderful, yeah. And, we never knew it was going to be go down in history. It was just a wonderful time. And that's what, you know, I mean, all the photos that I took, I never knew they would go down in history. I never once thought, wow, someday I'm going to have uh, a lot of pictures. Never once, you know, I just thought, wow, what's, what's happening today? Where am I going to go? You know, I've been asked to go here or go there. I just, you know. You, you, it just worked that way. You'd go, go have lunch on Sunset Strip and meet somebody, Mama Cass, oh, come on up to the house, you know, we're gonna swim in the pool. You go up there and there's John Sebastian. They say, hey, I need a picture. And it just, one thing led to another. There are now so many photographers, you know, and, and what, what happened was when, when more and more photographers came on the scene and then some of them would start like making a poster and selling it, I mean, you know, I mean, I was friends with the band. I mean, I, I wasn't trying to make money on the side by selling pictures out the back door. I never even thought about that. Uh, I was showing them in my slideshows and people would use them in magazines or album covers. But uh, unfortunately, some people would go shoot a show and then, you know, try to make a poster and sell it. And then especially online. So people are guarded now, you know. You have to sign a contract. You can only shoot three songs. Well, you can't get that much in three songs. If you're a newspaper guy, you can get the one picture for the paper, but all the good things are gonna come later in the concert. So you have to know the group, get an all-access pass. They have to trust you. It's a matter of trust. I think one of my partners, Timothy White, in our Morrison Hotel Gallery, uh, no, 
it was Mick Fleetwood. We, we, have an, uh, we have a gallery in Maui at Mick Fleetwood's club, and he gave a little talk the other night, and like, we had a show of my photos, and, and he said, you know, a lot of this was trust. You know, those, those groups had to trust that photographer that he was gonna get a really good picture. They, they put their trust in him. They would let themselves be photographed, and I think, you know, maybe that's, it's hard to know who to trust maybe now. I am so glad that I got to take all those pictures, you know. I, I don't claim it, you know, as some kind of a badge of honor. I, I don't even, you know, I, I say, look, I didn't, I didn't make those pictures. I didn't, I mean, I was there. I got to capture those moments, you know. But it's the people in the f photos, that's the main thing. You know, I was quietly the guy who, who captured that moment, you know. But it's really what you really are looking at is those people, those great musicians and those great moments. I will say I really, I really love people. I think people are amazing. Every single person is amazing. I, I just think, you know, we, each one of us is a universe. You know, every single person is, I mean, each one of us knows what it's like to be in our life with our, our, our you know, our past and our, our, you know, our fears and our, you know, feelings and our dreams and our wishes and all. I mean, everybody has that, right? It's, I think that's amazing. I think it's amazing still trying to figure out, you know, all the, all, all the things about being a human being, you know, how, what an amazing adventure it is. And that's the way I kind of approach, you know, hanging out with people. And I will say, you know, not, ha not being in a photo shoot, but just hanging out with real people in their real life. I get to sit and watch and just wait. I mean, some people say, well, you're, most of your people are smiling in your pictures. Well, because I, I, that's when I take the picture. I wait. I mean, if I'm sh photographing Joni Mitchell, she'll be talking to somebody, and I'll be looking through there, just waiting until she looks just, oh, click, that's it. Just wait till she looks and smiles. You know, I get to pick the moment, and, and, and I usually look for the moments when I think the people look the best way, the way I want them to look, the best way they can look. So once again, that was Henry Diltz, and just an amazing story being 12 feet away from Jimi Hendrix shooting <laughs> those photos. I mean, everybody's seen the famous Woodstock pictures, but you don't really think about there, there was someone behind the camera taking those pictures. Mm -hmm. And Henry's been responsible for so many mm -hmm. famous pictures over the years no and, and album covers, Morrison Hotel, right. Crosby, Stills, Nash, so many different things. Mm -hmm. So we're moving to our final segment of this Woodstock 50th anniversary podcast, and we are going to be hearing from the father of Woodstock himself, Artie Kornfeld. So Dan, what can you tell us about Artie? Well, of course, as one of the co-founders of the event, he was really responsible for finding the place, which of course got a lot of flack later. You know, not everybody thought that many people were going to show up. So there were lawsuits afterwards about damage to adjacenting properties and things like that. All the things that a manager and a concert promoter worry about these days, they didn't really worry about that because they had no idea this many people would show up. And they didn't count on the weather. Uh, and that, of course, contributed to a lot of problems. But I think mostly what I, I think about is just how he had the vision of bringing music of all styles. We talked about this earlier with Sha Na Na singing doo-wop. We don't really think about that when we look back at, at uh, Woodstock. We think of Jimi Hendrix and that kind of stuff. But I really think that part of Artie's vision was 
all sorts of music, exposure to all sorts of styles. And I think that's exactly what they wound up doing. And I think it's important to say, too, I'm, I'm not sure if he says it in this clip, but Artie was the one who was responsible for making that piece of land a historical mm. area so that That's they can't right. build on it and it will stay the way it was for Woodstock forever, which is amazing because um, I know people go there all the time. My parents went there not too long ago to see the museum and everything. Mm. So it's great that he was able to do that. No doubt about it. So here's Artie just giving us some final thoughts on Woodstock. Four days before, five days before I was going to go up to the site because the promotion was done, I had thrown out tickets that I printed up and sold a million and a half because Michael had gone over budget and we were broke. And I just took an ad and I, I knew the program directors and I did some advertising because I didn't have a lot of money left because he built a site and never got a permit on the, on the site. And I wanted to go, it to go over, we were going to go bankrupt. So I got the money in. And it's, it's all so cosmic, it really is. Because I'm getting ready to go up to the site and I look, I look down and I see uh, there's, a, there's a billboard that said, it says, Freddie Weintraub sells interest in Bitter End and, and is now vice president in charge of movies at Warner Brothers. Okay, I call Freddie because I signed Leon Bibb and I spent a hundred grand on the album, which is a lot in 1966 when I did it. It was a lot of money to spend in those days. And I, did the, I was the first person to do a Leonard Cohen. I did Suzanne first. And it's really a good arrangement. Strings, I did a big orchestra. Yeah. And uh, there I was on the way to Warner Brothers. Went up, so Ted Ashley was my, was, had the councils. When I had the councils, he was my agent. And he was now chairman of the board. And I sat down and it was a 35-hour battle back and forth. I didn't know that my partners, because they were always jealous of me, I don't know why. I'm the only one that didn't know Woodstock for money. I wanted to stop the war in Vietnam sure. and show that the war babies were powerful. You know, unfortunately, afterwards, I don't know, we'll see. We'll see how the seeds of the war babies do show up. And I think with the millennials, because when I speak at colleges, I can see who's, who's reacting and who's not. Uh, after 35 hours, this is it. This is what made Woodstock history. After 35 hours, you know, Ted said, all right, let's, let me, let's face it. Warner Brothers is almost bankrupt. Our movies are doing nothing, and documentaries are dying all over the place. They're not doing anything. So I out of nowhere, I said, well, what if the uh, big light stanchions fall over if this rainstorm and 150 or 200 kids are killed, and there's a massive riot. It'll be the best disaster film ever. It'll be as good as the Titanic. And they started laughing, and he said, okay, let's get a secretary in here, and let's do a contract. Just you and me talk it out without lawyers. Just you, me, and Ted. He says, because we've turned this thing down 52 times from big agencies, but I can't turn you down, and I believe you already. I convinced him it would happen because I really believed it. And I knew it was going to happen. I saw it the night we thought it up. And uh, had Michael Wadley fly in the helicopter, and everybody knows he had Scorsese up there because Scorsese was in one of his classes he was teaching. So he had, I had, had him as, as, he had 12 people, or 15 people, and two cameras, three cameras, because of his technique. And, had Michael fly him into the city and gave him a check for $100,000, 
and had him sign a paper with Warner's guaranteeing he was going to direct it through the final cut. And uh, that was the, that was the witch uh, the Woodstock movie thing happened. And um, when they put out the director's cut too, you know, for many years I let Michael Lang take credit, you know, because every interview I do, I talk about Michael because it wouldn't have happened without me and Michael. There was a magic thing that happened, sure. you know. But he didn't have any experience at it, and I and I was a pro already, yeah. and I and you know promoting. I knew I know how to promote, you know. So. Uh, even when I was selling uh, ice cream from a truck, you know, when I was working at McDonald's as a kid, you know. Great. You know, so um, when they introduced the director's cut and they had the whole press in New York there, everybody was lined up, you know, the, you know, Wadley and Lang and Joel and whatever. And he had the whole press. He said, before I start the formal part, I like, Artie Kornfeld, will you come out here? And I said, oh God, what? And then he said to them, he said, you know, this man standing here is the guy who put Woodstock in history. He said, we did not want this movie at all, but when Artie believes in something, he, he believes so much that you have to think maybe he's right. And uh, he battled us and he forced us basically to sign a movie deal and a record deal. And uh, he said, whether you know it or not, he said, you know, you know, Woodstock starts in the seventh grade all around the world in history books. And, and I've even done interviews for people at Oxford that were going for doctorates in sociology. And uh, then I realized, and then when Time Magazine came out and said the 10 greatest events of mankind, and had one was landing on the moon, and two, I was reading it, said the Woodstock Music and Art Fair in 1969 was the greatest, you know, event of man, peaceful event of mankind in mankind's history, you know, and I said, oh, wow. I said, I, I finally got recognition. I did deserve, people did deserve to know because I never said that in my interviews. I don't want to be better than anybody else that was my partners, you know. But I want, but it was good that the truth came out and it yeah. was fun because in the director's cut, he shows me bringing Richie up to the mic and starting the concert. And other people had written in books that they had done that, and there it was in the director's cup. Yeah. And uh, what a great legacy for you. Yeah. Well, you know, I saved the site. I stopped Bethel Woods from building on the site, and uh, oddly enough, except for Richie's ashes on the 45th anniversary, I don't hadn't been to the site in almost 45 years. Uh, on the 45th, I had a huge 70-foot uh, screen, and I sh and I talked for an hour. No, no publicity and 3,000 kids showed up. And I talked for an hour and then I sat down with the kids and I actually got to see Woodstock as a fan. And it blew my mind. Because yeah. every time I looked at it, there were so many emotions. Like, what a great concert, what great music, and what a great job Wally did. And it was just amazing. And I, I don't know if I feel proud I mean, I'm glad that God, or whatever you believe in, you know, picked me as a messenger. Because I don't feel like I'm the creator of that. It's just too huge. I feel like I was picked to be the messenger, you know. Well, you guys, this has been a lot of fun. I'm really glad that we took the time to celebrate Woodstock 50 years later. We have an interesting perspective. 
being able to pull out some of these interview clips from, from the uh, NAM Oral History Program. So I appreciate both of you helping with that. And I appreciate all these guys sharing their stories over the years. I think it's really been great to have this uh, opportunity to celebrate a very land, big landmark in uh, American music. Yeah, just such a great festival. It was um, so historical and so important to music as a whole and really changed the way that you know, people listen to music and people attend concerts and all that kind of stuff. So it's just great that we were able to honor it and the 50th anniversary and somehow the schedule worked out where this <laughs> podcast comes out on the same day that Woodstock started 50 years ago. So. Awesome. Right. And keep in mind that we definitely have a lot more stories about Woodstock that were not included in this podcast. Like if they wanted to go see the what other stories we might have, where would they go? That is a very good question. You can head over to nam, N-A-M-M dot org slash library. Click on the advanced search tab right there and that'll take you to a search area where you can find all the different tags and interviews having to do with Woodstock and everything else in the music industry. <laughs> awesome. Good stuff. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate it. We'll see you again in two weeks. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Michelle Shedler, and Dan Del Fiorentino. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, you can send those over to library at nam.org.